Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was pondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you were looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and Lord, we're just delighted to be here. Uh, I like what one person came up to me this morning and said is, I've been looking forward all week to coming to church. And Lord, we've all been looking forward to coming to church. God, to being in, in your presence, to worshiping together. The fellowship is so wonderful and loving. God, your work among us is so wondrous. It's exciting. I never quite know what's going to happen every week. I, I'm just, I'm, we're riding the wave of your leadership, the, the work of your spirit. And we want to just stay with you. We want to keep in step with you. We want to follow your lead. We want to be a part of the great work you're doing on this island and in the world. And so, God, here we are again, not quite sure exactly what it is that you'll do in our hearts this morning, but with hearts that are eager to say yes to you, because you are our Lord. So, Father, have your way. Holy Spirit, take over, lead our time, open our hearts, open our ears, change us, transform us, and give us your heart, your thoughts, your passion for the things of your kingdom. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. I want to begin by sharing just briefly God's history and His plan. And it's going to take me about two minutes. I'm going to condense it. 
God's plan ever since the fall of man has been to redeem mankind. It's been to fill his kingdom with worshipers. It's been to create a bride for himself for all eternity. That's God's plan. How we accomplish that is very interesting because he started with just one man. The man's name was Abram, later to be called Abraham. One man was to raise up an entire nation, the people of Israel, and that nation was to reach the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This record of God's plan is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. That's the second stage. First, he chose the man. Second, he chose to raise up a nation. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through this nation of Israel. That was God's plan. He wanted the whole world to know who God was and eventually to have the revelation of the Messiah in such a manner that Jew and Gentile and any person, any race, creed, nationality, tongue, anywhere in the world would know God and be redeemed and be a part of this master plan of God to fill his kingdom with worshipers and to prepare for himself a bride. But instead of embracing this wonderful plan to affect the entire world, the Jewish nation misunderstood God's special calling on their lives. And in their sinfulness, just like in ours, we began to think, as they began to think, that it was all about them. And so they began to take all these blessings for themselves and began to exclude other peoples, other nations. And they became proud and arrogant and ethnocentric to such a degree that they actually thought that non-Jews were not loved by God. They were called Gentiles, people of lacking faith, people not of Yahweh. And so this great divide began to, to grow, this wall of barrier, this wall of separation that came between the people of Israel and the people that were not of Israel, the Gentile community that God had sent them to minister to. Instead, they erected this giant wall of all of these traditions and all of these rules and regulations about who they could talk to and who they couldn't talk to. They couldn't talk to a Gentile. They couldn't have a Gentile in their home without becoming unclean. They couldn't go into a Gentile's house. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the Jewish family would have a funeral for their son and from that point on consider that boy dead. They couldn't do commerce with them. If someone that was Gentile created something or a product or a service, they could not receive it as Jews because it was unclean by virtue of the fact that it had been touched by a Gentile. Well, you can imagine how the Gentiles felt about the Jews. They didn't like the Jews. They hated the Jews. They mocked the Jews. They loved to scorn them uh, for their circumcision and the Sabbath day and their worship of an invisible God that couldn't be seen, for their abstinence from certain foods and all the other aspects of Jewish life. And it was just a real division. It was a powerful separation between people groups. And the saddest part about all this was is that God had designed the Jewish people not to be the sole inheritors of the blessing of God, but to be the people that would be the distributors of the blessing of God. And somehow the, the work of God got blocked and God was going about to bring these walls down. In fact, that's what it was. It was a huge wall of hostility. And if any of you are old enough to remember, it wasn't that long ago, but when Reagan spoke 
to the, to, the, uh, to the Soviet Union, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, does anybody remember what he said? Tear down this wall. That is what chapter 10 is about. I mean, I could just stop right now, but I won't. But that's, in essence, what this message is about. And I want to share with you, before we get into the text itself, that I'm praying to God because I think that there are walls possibly in ignorance or in blindness that maybe we as a church have even erected thinking that, you know, we just kind of want to be a big happy family and we kind of want to keep taking care of each other and we want to be blessing each other and we want to keep growing and have wonderful families and we want to keep, you know, having the Lord work in our life and reveal more and deeper truths about Him. But at some point, we have to be concerned about maybe we could fall into the same trap as the Jews, the people of Israel that began to just suck dry all of these blessings and consume them on ourselves. And it could be that God may be saying to us this morning through this text, Calvary Chapel, tear down the walls. I want you to go out. I want the message out in the community. I want it to penetrate the lost. I want the people that don't know me to know about me. I have called you as a people not to consume all of this on yourselves, but to let the walls come down and then to go out and continue fulfilling the Great Commission that the church was given by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So you kind of know where I'm going. Let's look at the text. We find that um, it begins with two players, Peter and Cornelius. Now, I'm thinking, why was Peter part of the, this plan, this divine appointment, clearly orchestrated by God? Well, I think it's because Peter has got a history of being a guy that was willing to take chances, a, a guy that was willing to take risk, a guy that was willing to be on the forefront, on the edge, on the cutting edge of the work of God. Did Peter make mistakes? Man, you can't. That, Peter made a lot of mistakes. He had his foot in his mouth a lot of times, but, you know, the people oftentimes who are the leaders are the ones that are willing to make mistakes, that are ones that are willing to get things wrong while they're getting a lot right. Peter was a man like that. He was the first to step out of the boat. He was the first to identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. He was the first and only disciple to be presented with the keys of the kingdom. I believe those keys were given in advance to Peter for the purpose of unlocking the door of the gospel to the Gentiles that we're looking at here in this text. He was the first to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He was the first to heal a cripple in the New Testament church. He was the first person to raise someone from the dead. We studied this last week in the church. And now... We already discover from our study last week in chapter 9, the last verse, we find out that he's staying in the house of a man named Simon the Tanner, which may not mean a lot to us, but the fact is, is that if you were a tanner, you worked with leather. If you worked with leather, you worked with dead animal skins. If you worked with dead animal skins, you worked with dead animals. If you worked with dead animals, you were unclean. If you were unclean, you could not have anything to do as a good Jew with a tanner. And so tanners were not even allowed in the city of Jerusalem. They, were, they were, had to be outside the city because it made anyone unclean. And yet here we find Simon, Peter, saying with Simon the tanner because he's already beginning to get the heart of God because remember, he's already been preaching in Samaria. The, the Gentiles, the hated Gentiles, these people were really, they were Jews, but they were like renegades. Now God is taking them a step farther from just renegade Jews half-breeds, they called them, the Samaritans, and now he's taking a step further into the Gentile community. And so we find that God is already speaking to this man. 
And this man is responding in ways that the other disciples weren't comfortable responding yet. And he, he's going to have an encounter with a man named Cornelius. We find a lot about Cornelius in, uh, in verse 1 and 2 and also verse 22. It says that it was a certain man, and I've talked about this last week. In some of your English translations, that phrase is missing, but it's there in the Greek. A certain man named Cornelius. And it completely identifies this as a divine appointment. It's just not like he just happened to pick Cornelius, but it was a chosen divine appointment with this man named Cornelius, who, of course, was a Gentile a centurion. Even worse, he was a Roman officer who had responsibility over a hundred men. That's what a centurion was. So he had a couple strikes against him from the Jews' viewpoint. Number one, he was a Gentile. He was already a dog. That's what they referred to Gentiles. Outsiders, non-participants in the work of God. And then he was a Roman, which was, well, he really has three things against him. He was a Roman the occupying nation in Israel that they felt was completely anathema. And the third thing is he was an officer in the army that carried out the Roman rule and command against the Jewish people. Most of these centurions were military, tough-minded individuals. They were cruel. And yet there was something very different about Cornelius. In fact, we find that there are a number of things that distinguish him from your normal Roman army officer. The first thing that we're told in verse 1 and 2 is that he and, his all, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. It means he was pious and godly. And God-fearing has to do with the identif identifying factors of, of a Gentile. The Jews described Gentiles in three categories. There was the Gentile Gentile, which was like a total pagan, no interest in God, and living an ungodly life. And then you had a God-fearing Gentile. A God-fearing Gentile was a believer in Yahweh that was a supporter of the Jewish nation of Israel, and yet they were still a part of the, uh, of the kingdom and the citizenship of Rome. And then you had a proselyte. A proselyte was somebody that was a God-fearer, you know, kind of on steroids. These are the guys that not only believed God, but they were following all the ways of the Jewish nation and went so far as to even participate in the covenant of circumcision. So we find that this man was, was devout, but he didn't necessarily celebrate all the Jewish customs and he, and he wasn't circumcised, but he was a believer in God, in Yahweh. But he certainly, as we're going to find out in the text, doesn't yet know Jesus Christ as a Savior. And we also find out something else about him in verse 2 is that he was a generous man, generous toward the needy. It means to have a compassionate desire to fill and fulfill the financial needs of those in need. So this guy was like pouring it on. We have an account in Isaiah chapter 58 where the Lord is speaking through Isaiah the prophet, and he says, what kind of a fast do I really want? And he says, this is the kind of fast that God blesses to take care of the needs of those people who are without, to clothe the naked. And, to, and so um, this is the calling of of the church, of a Christian. This is what God wants to see. He wants to see us actually doing something to serve people. Listen to what he says in the end of this section of Scripture in Isaiah 58. He says, when you do these things, your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am, here I am. And this is just because a man or a woman or a group of people like ourselves are willing to serve other people. That's what God's Word says. We also find that he was a man who prayed regularly. 
The Bible tells us in Colossians 4, 2 that we're to devote ourselves to prayer. We're to give ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful in all circumstances. In fact, the Bible is full of a consistent message that God honors men and women who seek him in prayer. I like what Spurgeon has said about prayer. All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in prayer. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. Be sure that you are with God, and they, then you may be sure that God will be with you. Just powerful, powerful stuff about prayer. The Bible is filled with evidence that God blesses men and women of prayer. We also are told in verse 22 that he was a righteous man. It means he's holy and innocent. He's innocent in his behavior. There are very few people that are regarded in this way who were Gentiles, but Cornelius was one of these men. How does a man or woman become righteous? Well, Romans 1.17 tells us that, that God has established a righteousness that isn't by works, but it's by faith in Christ. And so the righteous are men and women who live by faith. But true righteousness, if a man or woman has truly received Christ, their life will also evidence outward signs and works and deeds of righteousness as well. Part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is that we become men and women who are actually living the Christian life, not just believing the right doctrine about the Christian life. But Cornelius not only believed the right things, but he also let that belief affect his living. And the last thing that we'll mention about him in verse 22 is that he was respected by all the Jewish people. It means highly valued. These are other words that are translated of the same Greek word in the New Testament. Highly valued, well spoken of. It's the kind of quality that, uh, that really should mark the life of every believer. This quality about Cornelius should mark your life. In, this is such a small community. It, it really is. And if you live here, you know that it's a fishbowl. But I think it's an advantage to the Christian because it gives us an opportunity to just be on display everywhere we go. And uh, we don't always get it perfectly right, but there's an opportunity for unbelievers to watch us and to observe us and to see the kind of life that we live so that we're not just simply believing the right things, but it's evident to people around us that we are truly men and women of God. And Cornelius was a man that was respected by all the Jews in his town. That's a tremendous statement about this man. And so he was honored. He was blessed by people. He was recognized by people as a man who was truly a follower of God. I pray that that's true of you. I pray that's true of us as a church. I had a, a, a guy in our fellowship, a young man, but he was just telling me that he had a decision to make regarding a business situation, and, um, and he actually had the legal right to, to take action on a situation that had happened, but he said, you know what, God told me not to do it because of the testimony and the, mis the confusion it would leave about who I am as a Christian, because this man happens to be very bold in his witness for Christ. And in essence, what he was saying is, I would rather take the loss than to have the kingdom of God affected by someone's confusion who might be observing this process. 
And so he took an actually a fairly substantial financial loss rather than have his testimony and the testimony of Christ in and through his life be affected in a detrimental way. Now, I, I, thought, I, I told him right on the spot, I said, I can't tell you how much that means to me that you're living that kind of a life because people all over this island are watching this church and watching other churches on the island and watching your life as well. It's nothing to be shied away from. It's something to embrace. It's something to thank God for that people care enough about what a true Christian is to observe your life. And so there's no pressure. Just live the Christian life. Just fall in love with Jesus. You don't have to be worried about anything. Just live the life that God has called you to. By his power, he will enable you to do it. And you will hear that kind of statement about you as well, that people, though they may not even believe in your God, have a high regard that speak well of you because of your character and of your consistency and your integrity of life. So all of this is going on with, with Cornelius. This is who he is. And God sends an angel to him, the Bible says, during the time of prayer. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All the Jews, they had a practice at 3 o'clock. It was called the evening prayer. They would pray. And so Cornelius, as a practicing believer in Yahweh, was praying before God and crying out to God. What was he praying for? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he was probably praying for wisdom. He was probably praying for insight. He was probably praying for his family and for those that are under his leadership. He was probably praying for more light and more understanding. And one thing that God always does when a man or woman wants light is he gives light. He answers that prayer. The Bible tells us in, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24, that this is the Lord speaking. He says, before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. This is God talking. He doesn't change. Before you call, God's already working on the answer. Isn't that amazing? But it doesn't say if you never call, God's going to send the answer. He says, before you call, before he knows, he already knows you're going to call. Before you even call, he's already orchestrating and putting all the pieces of the puzzle together to bring an answer. And he answers even before you finish praying. And so we find Cornelius is a man who's praying, and as he is praying, he hasn't even finished praying, an angel appears to him. And he has this vision, and the angel says to him, Cornelius, I love that. Why do I love that? Because he knows his name. I love that he didn't say, number 352, <laughs> your number's up, please step in line to receive your instructions. No, he doesn't do that, you know? He says, Cornelius. I don't believe he yelled it. I, don't, I think it was like, hey, Cornelius, it's you, man. I've been sent to you. The Lord had Cornelius on his heart. He was observing this man's life, and he had a heart for him. And I want to tell you something. As God has got a heart for you. He knows you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. For some of you, that's an easier count than others. I was just kind of <laughs> scanning the audience here. But it's still impossible for us to know those numbers. But God knows the number of your days. He knows everything about you. He knows the problems you're facing right now. He knows the heartache you suffer. He knows the agony. He knows the joys. He knows the hopes and the dreams. He knows it all. And he's got your name. And if you're a believer, he's even written in it as Lamb's Book of Life. And so this angel by name calls out to Cornelius. And Cornelius, never having seen an angel, never having had a vision before, stares in fear before this angel 
but he immediately makes himself available and says, what is it, Lord? He, he knows this is supernatural. He doesn't know what he's even talking to. It's an angel. It's not the Lord. But as best as he can tell, he was talking to, this was a supernatural experience. He's in prayer. He's crying out to God, and God sends an angel, and the angel says his name, and he says in all of his ignorance and his misunderstanding and his maybe even wonderment about what this all meant, he said, what is it? In essence, saying, I, I don't understand at all what's happening, but I'm with you. <laughs> I want to hear what you have to say to me. And so he made himself available. And the angel's response and instructions were as follows. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Everything that we're going to talk about from this point on flows from that truth. God recognized Cornelius' offerings and his life and his character as a fragrant offering, a memorial sacrifice to God, and it had come before the presence of God day after day after day after day after day after day. And the angel says, your life, Cornelius, your sacrifices, your quietness of meeting needs, the low-key way that you are teaching and training those under your leadership to be godly leaders, to be godly men, to know Yahweh, your sacrificial lifestyle, your willingness to separate yourself from the normal Gentile attitude toward Jews and to embrace them because of me, that has come up to me as a fragrant offering. And he sends this message through the angel. And I want to share something with you that whatever you do for the Lord goes up before him as a fragrant offering. You may think nobody notices, but God notices. You may think that the times that you've sacrificed or given, and some of it is not just for outsiders, but for, especially for women, sometimes with their own children, and you feel like nobody cares, like you're wasting your life, like you'd like to be doing something more important and something more valuable. What I can tell you is that these quiet acts of obedience that happen, whether they're from a man or a woman, rise up invisibly, silently, before the throne of God, and they're a fragrant offering to Him. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. So do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is so important to recognize. I believe the reason that Cornelius was chosen, I don't think it was just like eeny, meeny, miny, moe, pick a Gentile by the toe. You know, I just made that up just right now. I'm a little proud of myself. But I have to give credit to the Holy Spirit. It's not me. But I'm not sure he wants credit for that one. But Cornelius was chosen and divinely selected for a very specific reason because there was a character quality about him. There was a devout passion for the things of the kingdom about him such that God said, he is a man that I can choose. He's a man that I can trust. He is a man that I can appoint and anoint for my purposes in this process of bringing down this wall of division between Jew and Gentile. And I believe that God is looking for men and women like this today. The Bible says that he is scanning the face of the earth today, looking for men and women whose hearts are completely devoted to him so that he might support them, that he might advance his purpose through them. 
I, I pray that every one of us here this morning, every single one of us, cry out for a heart like that. We want to be men and women like that. We want to serve the Lord like that. We want to be available in such a way that God says to us, I've seen, I've heard, I've watched the fragrant offering that's been coming before my throne in your quiet acts of obedience and service before me. And so the angel speaks this word to him and says, I want you to send men to Joppa and bring Peter back. He's staying with the tanner. And so Cornelius' response was immediate. He sent his servants and it says his devout soldier, a devout soldier, the same word that's used to describe Cornelius, godly, righteous, just. And now we find out that his lead attendant, his soldier, is such a man as well. How do you think that that man became that way? I think under the leadership and mentoring by Cornelius. The text also tells us that Cornelius' whole family was devout and God-fearing. And now we find that his men are devout and God-fearing. This man had enormous influence. You know, it's one thing to be a leader and to be recognized and applauded and appreciated by people outside your family. It's another thing when your family says he's devout or she's devout and God-fearing. It's one thing when a man can come to church or a woman can come to church and a business leader in the community, and we have many that are in that category, and to have people at church think highly of you, but it's a whole other thing when your employees describe you as devout and God-fearing, and they, because of your influence and your character and the way that you conduct yourself in business and in relationships and communication, they rise to a desire to model themselves after you. That's the kind of man that Cornelius was. And so he sends his servants on this mission. Now, the Bible tells us in verse 9 that at noon the next day, Cornelius and his servants were approaching. It was a 12-mile journey. So in essence, he was the servants, uh, this vision took place at 3 in the afternoon. And the Bible tells us that they must have left immediately the next morning. So he meets with the servants and he tells them the story. And, you know, he, he's got a, these servants have got to really be on page with Cornelius because Cornelius is sitting there saying, hey, an angel came to me and told me this and that and the other thing, and this is what we need to do, so I want you to go out and take care of it. We don't hear, you know, raucous laughter taking place in the text. We don't hear them going, you got to be kidding. You're taking it too far, man. That's it. I'm out of here. No, they don't say anything like that. They just get ready and they go because they trust Cornelius. They've seen his life and his character. And so it tells us that simultaneously, and this is how God always works with a divine appointment, he's always working with multiple factors simultaneously, and I would say really thousands of strands of information and coincidences and divine appointments are all taking place over human history to bring a man and another man to this point in this text that we're looking at. It's an absolute miracle what we're studying this morning. It's a divine appointment. Mathematically, the chance probability factor of all of these things happening because now Peter's going to pray and right as he's praying, these guys are going to be knocking at the door. What are the chances? What are the chances? But we're not talking about mathematical probability. We're talking about the God of the universe who easily and regularly orchestrates divine appointments for those that call on his name. Not just for the apostles, not just for the, these wonderful Gentiles, but for every believer, you have got them on a daily basis if you're willing to recognize them. God is orchestrating your life. God is putting you in touch with the right people at the right time under the right circumstances. And it's not just a coincidence, but God has sent you as his ambassador, and you just need to find out why. That's the only, that's the only issue. 
It's like I go to, I talk to people at Walmart and I'll just say, okay, so why are we here together at Walmart? And they're like, what do you mean? I'd say, well, this is a, this isn't an accident. God sent you here. I haven't seen you in a year. So what, what, can, what can we pray for together? What's the need? What, what is God doing in your life? And if you just, sometimes we just have to ask. We're going to find out that Peter has to ask. He says, so what do you guys want? We don't even know sometimes. But the, the, the divine appointment takes place and sometimes we just have to ask for information. So, so what do you think God's doing? Why do you think God allowed us after a year on this island where you should be seeing people constantly? I haven't seen you in three years. So why today? What does God want to do in your life? And so Peter simultaneously is up on the roof praying and he's seeking the Lord and he falls into a trance and the Bible tells us that heaven was opened, which we actually have accounts of with Ezekiel and with Daniel and with Paul and John, uh, John uh, the Apostle on, on the island of Patmos. But there's this opening. It's kind of like a, a tearing away or a, a parting of the curtain of heaven and, and the saints of God have been able to see something spectacular, something that, that reveals who God is and his plan and purpose. And he sees this large sheet that's lowered from heaven and it's filled with animals, presumably both clean and unclean. Animals that based on Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, were allowed for the Jews to eat and some that weren't allowed for the Jews to eat and they were commingled together in this single sheet. And the Lord says to him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Now this is like shocking, you know, for Peter. He can't even believe this voice is coming from God. But he says, not so, Lord. Surely not. There's no way. It's not going to happen. Why? Because he was an observant Jew. He really was convinced he was doing what was right. He was wrong. But he thought he was right. The Bible tells us said, that he said, surely not, Lord, which is kind of an oxymoron if you think about it, because he's telling the Lord no. And Lord means that he's the master, the savior, the king, the ruler, the sovereign one, the one sitting on the throne of our heart who calls all the shots. And Peter's saying, no, Lord. So it's kind of funny. It's a bit of humor, Bible humor. Not very funny, I guess, but it's a, it's a, it's a tad. There are funnier spots in the Bible. We'll get to those. But this is one of those slightly humorous passages. No, Lord. Peter has done this before. Uh, there's a time in uh, Matthew 16, 22, where he said no to the Lord when Jesus was predicting his death on the cross. He says, may it never be. And then remember when Peter was going to get his feet washed by Jesus in John 13, he said, no way. You're not washing my feet, Lord. He uses that same phrase. Here, here's the thing that's encouraging to me. Is it, am I the only, only one that's ever said no to the Lord? I, have you ever said, no, Lord, not going to happen? That's as far as I'm taking this Christian thing. That's it. You know, you're invading too much of my life and I'm not going there. I love all the commands I love and I don't love the commands I don't love and I'm not going to say yes to the ones that I don't love. But we can't say to the Lord, no, Lord, and consider him our Lord. We can't say that. We either have to say no and recognize that we're on the throne of our heart or we have to say yes and acknowledge that he's on the throne. I find that, that it's easy for Christians on a regular basis to say, no, Lord. What's the, what's, the, uh, what's the way that we know how to know what God says to do? Well, we know the word. That's how we know what God says to do. That means you don't, you don't divorce your spouse. That means you don't bail on your kids. That means that you don't commit adultery. That means that you don't steal from your friends. That means that you don't slander your neighbor. 
That means a thousand different things that are all just under the caption of loving God and loving others. You don't have to keep a bunch of rules. All you have to do is just love God and love others. But when we violate that, in essence, we're saying, no, Lord. No, Lord. That's something that Cornelius didn't say, but it's something that we find Peter saying. And here's the hope it gives me. Peter said no to the Lord a lot and got it wrong. But he's also the guy that was out on the front edge, stepping out more than any of the other disciples too. And so I want to encourage you. If you make some mistakes, better to make a few mistakes than to never venture anything for God at all. God will help correct those things. But we need to be men and women that venture in faith with God and say yes as many times as we possibly can and limit and, in fact, eliminate these comments where we say no to the Lord. So Peter's concerned about this, and he was corrected three times by this angel in the vision. And he says, don't call anything impure what God has made clean. There's something that I, I wanted to share last night, and I, and I chose not to, and I feel like the Lord wants me to this morning. Because there's an application to our lives this morning as Christians, because sometimes we feel unclean. Some of you today may feel unclean, and maybe in some sense you are, that you need to confess sin before God and get some things squared away. That sense of guilt is, is given to prompt us and promote us to reconcile with God so that we can be free inside and clean. But the Bible says that when you come to Christ, you have been made clean through the righteousness of Christ. Why am I saying this? Well, because I run into Christians every once in a while that will, will just beat up on themselves. Like, I've got such a crummy past. I'm such a filthy sinner. I'm this, I'm that. I, I can never forgive myself for what I did in the past. And what they're in essence saying is they're saying, I am going to call impure what God has made clean. This is an encouragement for those of you that, you know, get the whip out every once in a while and beat yourself up over the past. And what I want to say is that even as Jesus said to his disciples when he was going to wash their feet, he says, you know, you're pretty much clean. You're clean except for your feet. I just want to wash the feet. I just want to get the, the effect of the world off of you. But in essence, you're pure and clean. And as believers, when you receive Christ, he cleansed you and purified you. And the Bible also gives us John, 1 John 1, 9 on a daily basis to be purified, very much like Peter's feet were washed. We need our spiritual feet washed from just the accumulation of what happens in life. And the Bible says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to purify you of all unrighteousness. I don't know. I get excited about this because I think how wonderful a God that we have that he calls us clean which gets back to that issue that we talked about last week is that we're not sinners anymore, but we're saints. That's how we're identified by God in the Bible. And so, as Peter is wondering about all of these things, and, the, and it, actually in the Greek it means that he was thoroughly perplexed, the Holy Spirit begins to speak to him in verse 19 and 20. And he says, Simon, three men are looking for you. They're going to be knocking at the door in just a moment, and I want you to go downstairs, and I don't want you to hesitate to meet them and to spend time with them. Actually, the word hesit hesitate in the Greek is diakrino. It's from the root word krino, which is to judge or to be prejudicial. So in essence, the Holy Spirit is preparing Peter and saying, he didn't tell him they were Gentiles. He said, three guys are looking for you and I want you to go down and Peter, I want you to kind of steal yourself. I want you to kind of prepare yourself. I want you to, to ready your heart because I don't want you to show any judgmental, prejudicial attitude toward these three men who are coming. And so he went downstairs 
And he said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Which gets back to my whole thing about divine appointments. We don't always have all the information. When I run into people or meet people or talk to people, God doesn't always tell me, Bob, this is what they need, this is what you need to say, and uh, just lay it on them. I, I, I can think of just a handful of times where God gave me a word of knowledge like that. Most of the time, I find myself in this divine appointment I wasn't expecting, I wasn't prepared for, it wasn't on my plan or schedule, and I'm now confronted with this opportunity. I recognize God's appointment because I believe all the appointments I have are from God, so I don't have to try to decide, is this one, is that one? I believe everything that God does in my life and in your life, in the Christian's life, is divinely orchestrated as we walk in obedience to him. And so for me, it's not, is this a divine appointment, but why did God orchestrate this? And so Peter, in essence, is saying the same thing. What do you want from me? Verse 22, the servants informed him, we've come from Cornelius. An angel told him to have you come to his house because he's to hear, and we're to hear what you have to say. I love this. this I, I, you know, from a human standpoint, I'm thinking, how inefficient. That's me. How inefficient. Why send an angel to, to send another guy to speak to another guy to tell another guy to come to the house to teach? Why not just send the angel and have the angel? Cannot the angel? Is the angel... Ignorant of salvation is the angel incapable of describing salvation? Is the angel in, incapable of speaking? Certainly not. All those things we know the angel is capable of doing. But you will never find an angel preaching the gospel in the New Testament church. An angel will instruct men to go and women to go. But God always sends men and women to preach the gospel. He sends people to preach the gospel. The question is why? because he wants you to partner with him. I mean, this is the most awesome, incredible invitation on the planet outside of salvation itself, is that God is saying, I want you to partner with me. I want you to be a part of this master plan. I want you to be the one man. I want you to be the one woman. And I want you to raise up a, a, a nation, a generation of men and women who know me, who then will impact the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in the past, I've been like, eh, I don't want to do that. It's too scary. I remember as a young believer just trembling in my boots on San Diego State campus, you know, um, when we do evangelism over there, and I'd be like, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go out. I'm only like, you know, just a few months old in the Lord, and this guy's taken. Come on, Bob. You know, be a man. No, he didn't say that to me, but that's, <laughs> stop your sniveling. But I'd go out there, and after I'd do it, it was like, let's go do some more, you know? It's like, you, you, if you've witnessed before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're scared at first, and then you don't want to go home at the end, right? Because you want to keep witnessing to more and more people. And God has called us. He's inviting us into this great work of his. It's not a burden. It's a joy. It's a privilege. And he's saying, I want you to be that man. I want you to be that woman that will raise up your family, those under your leadership, those in your sphere of influence, those in your neighborhood, those in your community to know me. And I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness in that service in my kingdom. And I trust that God's going to have a lot of reward to hand out in, in this group of people because I know your heart and your love for the lost and your love for other people. And so this angel is sent to Cornelius, who sends his men, who goes to Peter, that Peter might come and preach. 
And Paul picks up on this idea in Romans 10 when he says, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God is still looking for men. He's still looking for women. Not perfect people, not powerful people, not from the world standpoint, the top cream of the crop people. He's just looking for anyone that's available because anyone, even the weakest, and maybe especially the weakest, his power is most greatly manifested and magnified in that life. And so the only qualification is being born again and living by his spirit. And so Peter, again, the forerunner of the disciples, invites these men in. And he doesn't just stand at the door and knock, you know, have a conversation. You've ever had somebody you just don't want in your house? And you can kind of tell they're by the door, you could invite them in or not invite them in, and you just kind of close the door and walk outside and have a conversation outside. Am I the only one that's ever done that? Okay, so some, you know what I'm talking about. But he invites these guys in. He doesn't just go halfway, but he invites them in and makes them, in the Greek, it says his guests, which means that he's extending the full hospitality of an honored person in his home. This is a watershed event that's going to shape the future ministry of Peter. It's going to shape and transform and change radically the ministry of the church and the history of the impact of the gospel. This door in chapter 10 is swinging wide open, never to be shut again. And it's a door that we still are in, a door that's open, that remains open, a door that we can walk through if we want to. And it's a door that, by God's grace, I'm going to pray, we're going to pray together and see what God might have, what God might do, what God might accomplish through a group of men and women who simply say, Lord, here we are in our failure sometimes, sometimes in our no Lord, sometimes in our confusion, sometimes in our state of being perplexed, sometimes in our state of just wanting to absorb everything God has for us, sometimes in our barriers, sometimes in our racial barriers, sometimes in our socioeconomic barriers, sometimes in barriers that we just erect around the church because, well, we just want to be one big happy family. But those walls must come down. God will never let a wall like that stand indefinitely. And how much better for us to examine our hearts and even as a church, examine what we're doing as a church and where we're going and say, God, bring the walls down and help us in these days that we live in, very likely the last days of the kingdom of God on earth in this sense, in this world, in these last days, bring the walls down that we might be a part of your great work. I want to summarize and close. What have we learned? Well, we've learned that God has a plan and it starts with one man and it starts with one woman. A man, a woman, a child. And God says, I'm looking for one. I'm looking for one. God doesn't look for masses of people. He looks for one at a time. And he's looking to you today. Some of you who have never come to Christ before, he's looking to you and he says, I want you in my family. I want you to be adopted in the family of God. I want you to be forgiven of your sins. I want you to be born again. And for those of us that are believers, he's looking for you and he's saying, I want you. I want you to raise up a nation. I want you to raise up a community. I want you to raise up a family that's following me that will in turn have an effect on those in their influence that in turn will have an effect on their influence and on and on until the world hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The second thing I want to remind you of is that God most often uses people of character in prayer. I don't think I need to say any more. That's the person God uses. The third thing that I want to remind us of in closing is that God often has to reshape our thinking to participate in his plan. I'm praying diligently for what God is doing in our church. It's a wonderful thing. God is blessing this church. God is growing this church. God is using this church in a more and more influential way. The, the, the work that God is doing is profound and beautiful. But I'm in prayer. Our leadership team is in prayer. And I want all of us to be in prayer that if God has to change our thinking about things, then let him change our thinking. If God wants to change the strategy on how he uses this church, then let him change the strategy. If God has to turn this church upside down to get the job done, then let him turn it upside down. We have no agenda other than serving God and bringing him glory and seeing as many people as possible come into the kingdom of God. Would you pray with us? Would you pray together that God would do that? Would you join in asking God to fling open the doors so that we can reach this community? That's what I want to ask you to do. I want to pray for it. I think God is just like, I think that God has opened a door and he's saying, do you want more? I think that that's what God is doing right now with this fellowship. Do you want more? And I think God has got more prepared for us, stuff that I believe we can't even imagine or think or even consider as possible. And it's not because of our church or the leadership team or anything like that, but it's because God has a heart for the lost. And he's looking for men and women like Peter. Don't get it all right all the time, but men and women that are willing to step up and say whatever you want. I don't understand it. I'm perplexed by it. But God, you lead us and we'll follow your leadership. And as we follow, we will bring as much glory and honor to your name as possible. We're willing. That's all God is looking for, a willing heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And Lord, it's just such a delight to get in your word together. We bless you for giving it to us. And I pray this morning that you would touch our hearts and move us and that, God, that we would desire in our hearts this intense, passionate longing to be that man or that woman. God, here we are. Sometimes in the walls that we don't even know we've erected, God, bring them down and help us to reach people with the message of Christ. Forgive us for sometimes like the Jews thinking that all these blessings are for our enjoyment, not realizing that, that you sent us to be a blessing to all nations. God, help us to spread it around. Help us to give it away. Help us to advance your kingdom. And Father, we ask and cry out to you, open more doors. Your servants are listening. Your servants are ready. We want to obey. We want to participate. We want to be a part of your divine plan. Here we are, Lord. Open the doors and send us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.